Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 1. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him, when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Let me pray. Father, we ask, we ask that you would help us to understand your word. We ask that your spirit would work in us so that we would see the truth of your word, so that our ears would hear And our eyes would see what your spirit is saying to the churches. That we would be different as a result of hearing your word. That we would change, that we would repent, that we would rejoice in our Savior, Jesus. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how often, how often do you think about your responsibility? Now, Now, here I said, your responsibility for the holiness of your brothers and sisters in Christ. You might think about your responsibility, hopefully occasionally about your responsibility for your own personal holiness, right? Although many of us may struggle with that. But how often do you think about your responsibility for the holiness of your brothers and sisters in Christ? We are so individualistic as a people that we seldom think of our responsibility for others. And Jesus informs his disciples that they're responsible for one another. In fact, in the first four verses here of Luke 17, if you would, if you would break this into two parts, the first four verses, Jesus is talking about our responsibility toward one another, and in really the next six verses, five through 10, we see our responsibility to the Lord. But as he addresses our responsibility to one another, he talks about really three commands that he gives us. The three commands, one is at the beginning of verse three, pay attention to yourselves. That's an imperative. That's a command. You're to watch yourself. Watch yourself with regard to what? That's what we're going to look at today. He also goes on and gives you two more commands. If your brother sins, rebuke him. In other words, you have a responsibility to rebuke your brother in sin. Now that might throw you for a loop because you haven't ever contemplated that before. You might think, Well, I know this next command, although it's the hardest of the three, I think, and if he repents, forgive him. I know God commands me to forgive people, and I really struggle with that, Um, but I'm supposed to rebuke them if I see them in sin? Yes. What does that mean? Well, what does it mean to be commanded to rebuke others in sin and to forgive others? 
when they're repentant. We're going to look at that next week because that's such a topic. I didn't want to cut it short today because I, I don't think you're going to have a big, difficult time dealing with the rebuking part. You might actually even like that. Um, although I'm going to modify it, so don't go apply it this week because I don't want you to mess it up. No, the, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm actually going to under, help you understand what Jesus means by rebuke him. He doesn't mean, I'll just say this, so as you go and apply this week, he doesn't mean go and nitpick your brother to death. That's not what he means, okay? We'll deal more with it next week, but I also want to spend a lot of time on the whole issue of forgiveness and this incredibly high calling to forgive someone when they repent. We really struggle with that. Um, So we'll deal with that next week. This week, I want to deal with this first command we're given with regard to how we care for one another when he says, pay attention to yourselves or watch yourselves. Watch yourself so that you aren't a stumbling block to others is really the nature of the command here. So as we look at verses one through three, I want to look at that, those three verses in three parts. Verses one through three in three parts as we consider what it means to watch ourselves so that we aren't a stumbling block for other people. Let's, the first part is this. Let's look at the condition of the world that we're in because the because Jesus begins with his disciples by orienting them to the condition of the world that they live in. Here's the facts. Here's the world you live in. Look at verse one. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin, literally in the Greek, scandalon, or what we translate stumbling blocks, are sure to come. In fact, the way that it's stated is in the negative. We don't use double negatives in English, but it's basically saying that it's impossible that they would not come. So we translate that they're sure to come because we don't use double negatives. You guys know what I mean by that? It's impossible that they would not come. These temptations to sin are sure to come. Stumbling blocks are sure to come. That's the condition of the world we live in. We live in a world in which it is guaranteed that there will be things that you trip over into sin. That there will be things that cause and lead to or tempt your foot to slip into sin. That there will be ways in which you're, in a sense, enticed by others into sin. What does Jesus mean by this idea of a stumbling block? Well, the Greek word classically meant, now I don't want you to carry this over, I just wanted to give you a little bit of the etymology of the word or the development of this term. It classically meant or referred to a stick that you would put in a trap. And then when someone would step on that stick, the trap would close on them. That's what it classically meant. They would be caught. As that word developed over time and came to the Greek that we have in our New Testament or the Koine Greek that we read, which is kind of the secular street Greek that we read, that word came to mean a stumbling block or some kind of rock, some instrument that might be put in the road that you would trip over or that you would slip on. And it's possible to put an instrument in someone's feet so that they intentionally slip or trip, right? I saw my son do that to my daughter last night. She was coming through, and he's like, Dad, you wouldn't believe it. I stood over the side, and I put my foot out, and she went, boom, right over. It worked, and she, they thought it was funny, and both of them. But the point is, is that we trip people up, right? Literally. Well, here we're talking about the idea of spiritually causing someone to stumble. Putting our foot in, in front of somebody when it comes to their holiness, 
someone's pursuing holiness with the Lord, and a stumbling block is when we essentially, as they're pursuing Jesus, put our foot out in front of them and trip them up. And the fact is, and what Jesus is wanting you to know, is you live in a world in which those kinds of stumbling blocks are sure to come. It's impossible that they wouldn't come. Because this is a fallen world. It's a sinful world. Jesus is ruling and reigning for sure, but he hasn't consummated his kingdom yet and put an end to sin and suffering and death fully and finally. Until he does, it is impossible, it is impossible that stumbling blocks will not come. They are sure to come. They will trip us up into sin. And these obstacles will intentionally be set by three different sources that you run into. One, the world. The world is setting stumbling blocks for us all the time, right? Go to the mall sometime. You will trip and fall. Because there are all kinds of advertisements around telling you what you lack, and discontentment will start to grow in your heart. Watch enough commercials, and you'll find out all the things you deserve that you don't have. And discontentment will start to grow. It's a stumbling block. Advertisers are intentionally, in the world, intentionally putting stumbling blocks in front of you to cause discontent in your heart so that you'll buy their products. I'm not trying to beat up on capitalists, don't get me wrong. I just want to deal with the reality of what it is going on in our world. The world doesn't care about your personal holiness. Doesn't. Satan and his minions will tempt you to sin. We've been going on a whole series in our grace groups on how he tempts you to sin. Your own flesh will tempt you to sin. Your own flesh. The world, the flesh, and the devil. They will all cause, bring about stumbling blocks for you. Sin may not reign in you anymore, but it still remains in you. As William Spursto once said, it's, it's there. And it tempts you. And the last thing we want to do as believers is be a source of temptation or a source of stumbling for others. And that's what Jesus goes on to say. Temptations are sure to come, and this really moves to our second part. Here's the reality of the world. You live in a world where stumbling blocks or obstacles to holiness are sure to come. Second part here, there's a warning to you would-be tempters. Here's the warning. But woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck, and so you know, a millstone is a large stone that they would use to, to you know, go and tread grain. So if you would put one of these large stones around your neck and be thrown into the sea, that would drown you. It'd be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. And we know from the parallels in Matthew 18 and Mark etc., that, that this is referring by little ones, he means his children. Woe to you if you cause one of my children to stumble into sin. If you cause one of the children of God to stumble into sin, it would be better for you to die than cause one of my children to stumble into sin. The woe here is an, is, um, an 
an oracle or a prophetic word of cursing. Right? God gives prophetic words or oracles of blessing. Like, blessed is the man who is poor in spirit. Blessed is the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Blessed, blessed, blessed. These are all oracles or prophecies of blessing. An oracle of woe is cursed is the one who does this. Woe to him who does that. They are cursed. Cursed is the one who causes one of God's children to stumble. God is going to deal harshly with all those who lead others into sin. In fact, this is picked up in Matthew chapter 13. You don't have to turn there, but at least you need to listen. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 41, this word of the stumbling block is dealt with in Jesus' response to it. In Matthew 13, 41, he makes this statement. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, all those who are stumbling blocks. They'll be gathered out and in that passage be cast into the fire. See, it's not a joke. It's weighty and serious, isn't it? R. Kent Hughes, who's a pastor um, or was a pastor who's retired, I was written lots of commentaries. He, he made the comment that, that he always prayed at his staff meetings And as he prayed for his staff, he would pray, Lord, kill one of us before you let us fall into adultery. People would say, why? Why would you pray for the Lord to cause your death before he lets you fall into adultery? Because he took the warning seriously. You see, of all people, pastors and other spiritual leaders have the greatest responsibility here because we have the greatest access to people and trust with people that we can use to tempt them into sin. Nothing harms God's people like pastors who fall into sin. Woe to the one who causes God's people to stumble into sin. His word is clear, that it's better that you be thrown into the sea and drowned than for you to offend his holiness and bring harm to his children through causing them to stumble. This is a pretty strong word. I mean, how many of you guys really believe this? Because here's the thing. We get to a passage like this, and you go, That's, that sounds really strong, and, and it's quite the rebuke, but do you really believe that offending the Lord by tempting his children into sin is really that offensive to him? Really believe that? Do you think to yourself, as you're about to gossip and be a stumbling block for another believer, is the first thought to yourself, I fear more gossiping right now and causing this person to sin than I fear than I fear being drowned to death. Do you get struck with any fear in your heart at all when you're about to lead someone else into sin? Because Jesus is saying, you ought to be more afraid of that than you are if someone tied a big rock around your neck and threw you into the ocean and you drowned. Do you fear it? 
Do you take this seriously? Here's how you can test the condition of your heart. What frightens you more? Being a stumbling block to others or death by drowning? So what kind of stumbling blocks can we provide to other believers? I want to address three kinds briefly. First is this, the general temptation of, or luring of someone else into sin or disobedience to God. So just a kind of a general temptation or luring of someone else into disobedience or, to God or sin. Just think about G, uh, Peter in Matthew 16, 23. As Jesus says, the Son of Man is going to go and suffer at the hands of the religious leaders. And he's going to die, and I'm going to die. And we'll rise on the third day. And Peter wants nothing of it. Jesus has been commanded by his Father to obediently go to his death, and Peter does not want Jesus to obey the Father in this. Even though it is necessary, according to the prophets, that Jesus would die. Peter does not want Jesus to obey the Father on this, and so Peter says, may it never be, Lord, or no, Lord, which is the most oxymoronical statement in all of Scripture, to tell God no. But he does. And what does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You're trying to lead me to disobedience to my Father. We can be guilty of this in encouraging others away from holiness in a myriad of ways. We can be a stumbling block to our children by exasperating them. And then they get in trouble because we exasperated them, and now they're disobedient, and then we discipline them for their disobedience, and we all wonder who's disciplining us for exasperating our children. We can be a stumbling block by intentionally digging at our spouse. I know what pushes my spouse's buttons, and so I'm going to push them until they respond and react. You're tempting them to sin. We can be a stumbling block to someone we are dating by tempting them to sexual sin. We can be a stumbling block by tempting others, other believers to gossip. I want the inside scoop. Tell me what it is. Tell me what it is. Tell me what it is. We can be a stumbling block by slandering the name of another and encouraging other believers to think poorly of others. Did you hear what so-and-so did? Can you believe that person? Now we start to color the way other believers think about them. We can be a stumbling block by encouraging others to watch, listen to, or participate in ungodly entertainment or speech or humor. Woe to you if stumbling blocks come through you. Second kind of stumbling block that can happen is when we use our Christian freedom at the expense of a weaker brother. Did you hear that? So we can, in general, tempt someone to sin, but the second kind of stumbling block is we use our Christian freedom at the expense of a weaker brother. Look at Romans chapter 14 briefly and keep your hand in Luke 17. Romans chapter 14. Paul deals with this as he deals with the Roman church, a Roman church that was... Um, that had both Jewish and Gentile believers in it. So you understand the scenario. Um, the Gentile believers understood better their freedom in Christ. 
They were not offended by eating food that had been sacrificed to idols. So they would go to the market, they would buy food, food that had been sacrificed to idols, they would buy that and eat that. They had the freedom to do it because they weren't participating in that case in idolatrous feasts. And since they had the freedom to do it, they would do it. The Jews, on the other hand, who grew up their whole lives learning that eating food sacrificed to idols was a sin, are struggling with the freedom in Christ to now eat that food. They're struggling with that freedom, and there becomes a battle between them. The Jews in this case, Jewish Christians in this case, being the legalists, if you will, and the Gentile Christians being the people who understand their freedom and want to enjoy their freedom. And the Jewish Christians in this case are the weaker brother. They don't understand their freedom. They don't get it. So what's the command that Paul gives in this context for them to help one another? Well, I want to start with verse 7 so we can, of chapter 14 so we can get to that. But look at verse 7. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. You have to start there. You have a responsibility to other people and to the Lord. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. You have to start there. If you're going to understand how you use your freedom with others so that you're not a stumbling block to them when they don't feel the same freedom, you have to start with the realization that your life belongs to the Lord. You have a freedom from sin, but you don't have a freedom to sin because you belong to the Lord and the Lord hates sin. For to this end, for this purpose, if you will, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Then he goes on and says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Now go down to verse 13. Therefore, in light of what I've said, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. In other words, this is talking about self-righteous hypocritic hypocrisies. You look down your nose at somebody. Let's not do that but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuading the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it's unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Hear what he's driving at? Yes, you're free to eat the food sacrificed to idols. You have a Christian freedom that you can now enjoy, but your life belongs to Jesus. And don't use your freedom as an occasion to cause your brother to stumble into sin. Say, but it's not sin for my brother to eat that food. But if your brother's offended by it, and he can't eat it in faith, as Paul goes down in verse 29 to explain, then it is sin for him. Don't encourage him to violate his conscience. Don't be a stumbling block for other people. Use your freedom to love people well. Third kind of stumbling block that we can be is the kind of stumbling block where we teach false doctrine. We teach, propagate, promote false doctrine. Keep your hand, if you've got it in Luke 17 still, look at Romans 16 now. Here's Romans 14. This term comes up again of a stumbling block in Romans 16. And look at verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out. Listen, watch out. You're supposed to watch out for yourself before. Now watch out for those 
who cause divisions and create obstacles, literally scandal on these kind of tripping stones. Contrary, what's the obstacle they're creating? Contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught, avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, or Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. See, we have to take it seriously that false doctrine is a major stumbling block for people. Our God is the God of truth, and Satan is the father of lies. And false doctrine is the great sin as it lies about God. Satan's favorite ploy is to lead you into false teaching because then you will think and behave sinfully. God will be treated as less than he is. There's, multi, there's a multiplicity of warnings about this. I, I want to look at a few of them. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Acts chapter 20, you should go back if you're there. It's right after the book of John, just before Romans. But Acts chapter 20 is Paul is teaching the church in Ephesus, the, the elders there. He's instructing the elders before he departs, and he wants the elders to be aware. And in his final parting instructions, part of what he instructs them about is these false teachers. And if you look at verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. See, watch out. There are wolves that are coming to consume the sheep. They're not just coming from out there. They're coming from within your own number. And Paul's giving an instruction here to the church in Ephesus, to those elders. And you want to know what happens? Two of those elders, Hymenaeus and Alexander, do become wolves in the church. And Paul then has to, in Ephesus, Paul then has to send Timothy in to clean up the mess. And we read about that in 1 Timothy as Paul tells him, 1 Timothy chapter 4, as he's dealing with this mess, he reminds Timothy of his responsibility, and he says to him, now, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. This warning comes again in 1 John 4, 1, when John the Apostle says, brothers, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they're from God. And then he goes on and gives you tests. You're not being divisive and cynical if you don't believe about every miracle or supposed new thing that you've, you have, you know, you see these things or hear these things and you question them. You're not being divisive. You're not being cynical. You're being obedient. The Bible commands you not to believe them easily, but to test them. 2 Peter 2, he goes on to say the same thing. Jude 1, 3 through 4, I could go on and on. Of all the commands here, that we watch out for the stumbling block of false doctrine. 
God warns anyone who causes his children to stumble into sin that their actions will not go unpunished. And it seems that Luke 17, at least according to most of the scholars, in Luke 17 verse 1, the stumbling block that he's keying in on the most, or that he's using the most strongly, is the idea, although all of these might be encompassed, is the idea of false teaching. Or doctrine that causes one of God's children to begin to turn away from the truth. Because there is no more destructive sin than that. There's no more destructive sin than causing someone to believe falsely about the Lord and his work. See, I might tempt my wife in a fight to sin against me as I sin against her. And that's horrific. And it would be better for me to be thrown into the sea with a millstone cast around my neck than to do that. But it's likely not going to damn her. But if I encourage my wife to believe a false gospel, it will. The command of Jesus' disciple that he gives to his disciples is the last part, Luke 17. So he tells them the condition of the world that they're in, the temptations are sure to come. He tells them of this warning that they have that they better not come through them, that they better not be the stumbling block. And then finally, he gives them a command. Verse three, the first part, pay attention to yourselves. We're commanded to watch ourselves so that, don't we be, that we don't become those who cause others to stumble or tempt others into sin or false doctrine. What does it look like to watch ourselves so we aren't causing others to stumble? What does that look like? Let me give you three quick applications for aspiring leaders. Anybody here is an aspiring leader in God's church? Let me give you applications first, and then I'll give a couple of applications briefly to those of us who are just the rest of the church, the rest of us. Here, here's the first sort of aspiring leader application or, or to the church. Don't become a teacher too hastily. Hear that? Here's the first application. You don't want to cause others to stumble in sin? Don't become a teacher in God's church too hastily. James 3, 1 is very clear that God judges those who teach the word with a stricter judgment. That isn't the most reassuring verse every time I read it, by the way, for me. But it is a huge reminder to me as a teacher in God's church. It is a huge reminder to me of my responsibility to study. So was this. I'm reading this verse on Monday morning as I'm studying, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, if I get up there and preach falsely, it's better for me to be thrown into the sea with a millstone around my neck than to preach to you falsely. That's a huge responsibility. And I don't think many pastors take it seriously anymore, and it saddens me that that's the case. It means you study hard. If you're going to jump into this, don't only not be too hasty into becoming a teacher in God's church. Make sure that you are well equipped before you stand before God's people and begin to try to teach them. Even if you're a small group leader, you better press in hard because you're leading these people and it's better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the sea than to lead them improperly into false doctrine. 
So you press in hard. You don't want to be too hasty. You don't want to be hasty about appointing new leaders. That's why Paul tells Timothy, don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. Don't appoint new leaders in your church hastily. Take time to make sure they're ready. And if you do become a leader, you better study diligently as you teach because you're supposed to, right? You're commanded to study diligently, show yourself approved as one who is what? Rightly dividing the word of truth. It's our responsibility. Elders are commanded to teach sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. So if you want to step up into that kind of role, just so you know, you better take it incredibly seriously that you study hard and pray hard and get pressed by other brothers who are smarter than you very hard so that you make sure you're teaching the truth to God's church. It's one of the arrogances of our day that that guys think that, well, seminary is unnecessary. I can study informally on my own. Fine. Maybe you can study informally on your own, but I'm going to tell you there's an incredible arrogance not to see these men as Christ's gift to the church who spent their lives studying to help you get the message right. You're incredibly arrogant not to think you ever need that. And so I, I would encourage you, if you're running that direction, to not be hasty about it. Study diligently because it's, it's worse to teach God's people falsely than to be drowned. What are the general applications? Let me give you two quickly. James 1.19, James tells us to be slow to speak and quick to listen, right? And he picks up on some proverbs in saying that and combines that in a particular context, but, but here's what I want to get at. As believers, we give each other advice, don't we? Don't we advise one another? Hopefully, we're speaking into one another's lives. Don't be too hasty in the advice that you give. Don't offer advice too quickly. Listen well. Listen long. One of the things I'm learning from Jason that he brings to the table for both John and I, I think, as pastors because of his counseling training and what he's doing, is is the skill of of before you speak, you need to listen a long time. He takes a lot of sessions just to hear what people are about before he starts to speak into lots of things because there are certain things in people's lives as they walk into the office, I'm like, Jason, when are you gonna get after that issue? Right? I'm praying for that. And he's like, dude, just be patient. Let's listen well, understand well, and then speak into it. And I, I can't tell you enough how instructive that is to me to learn to be quiet Listen, pray, search the scriptures, then speak. Because my temptation is just to speak right away. When you walk up and say, I have a question, I already think I know the answer. (laughs) And I have to learn to listen. Uh, Second is, is, and, and most importantly, is abiding in Christ and his gospel abiding in Christ and his gospel so that you may love your brother well and not cause him to stumble. In fact, that's connected. Abiding in Christ and his gospel, which I want to talk about, is connected to loving your brother well and not causing him to stumble in 1 John chapter 2. So look there briefly with me, if you will. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 10, and we'll finish with this. First John chapter 2. 
Look at verse 7 first. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And I'll, I'll deal with all this this summer when I preach the epistles of John, but I just want you to get to the context. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother, in other words, you say you're in Christ and you hate, his, you hate your brother, you're still in darkness. By your brother, that means your fellow believer. You're still in darkness. And he goes on, he says this in verse 10. I want you guys to catch this. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Now I want you to hear what he's getting at. When you're abiding in Christ, he's the light. When you're abiding in him, you've been taken out of the darkness. You've been rescued from the kingdom of darkness and carried into or brought into the kingdom of his beloved son. See, at one time you were a sinner that in the sense that it reigned over you. It ruled you. Sin owned you. And condemnation was yours. You lived in darkness. You were groping around in the darkness. And that's where you were. And Jesus, the light of the world, came into the world and lived perfectly in our place and went to the cross and paid our debt. He took the darkness that we were in and carried it upon himself and paid our debt there for our sin and rose from the dead, beginning a new creation. And when we trust in Jesus, we're forgiven for our sins and we're declared righteous. And if anyone is in Christ through faith, we're united to him, he is a new creation. Now you're out of the darkness in the light. How? By trusting in Jesus. Not by anything you've done, but by trusting in him and what he's done. You're now in the light. And if you're in the light, you're to abide in the light. You want to love your brother well? You want to love one another well? You want to know what you do first? Abide in Christ. Press into Jesus. Remember what he's done for you. Remember the love of God and the grace of God that's been shown to you in Christ. And you will begin to love others well. And when you do that, in him there is no cause for stumbling. You won't be a stumbling block to other people. As you press into Christ, you won't cause others to stumble. That's what he's saying. Now he's saying it in absolute terms. And I realize many of you might look at me and say, I press into Christ, I believe, and I'm still causing people to stumble now and then. I just caused my wife to stumble on the way to church this morning. Or she just caused me to stumble as we fought about how we drove here or how the kids got ready. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? You know what happens? I can tell when you walk in the door it just happened. I, how, do I, how can I tell that? Because it's happened to me. It's like, well, what about me? I want to come back to what I said earlier. This is an absolute statement. He's speaking absolutely. Sin doesn't rule you anymore. Therefore, you're not a stumbling block for other people anymore when you abide in Christ. However, sin still remains in you. It's still there. And because it remains in you, you will still sometimes sin, and you will still sometimes cause others to sin. And what do you do about it? You press into Christ ever more. 
you come back to the gospel, you remember who he is, what he's done, that he's made you clean, that he's forgiven your sins, past, present, and future, and that he is your hope. And as you do that, you then pick yourself back up, pressing into Christ, and start running after Jesus again. And you don't get utterly defeated by the fact that you just fell. You're going to. Sin remains in you. But Jesus commands you not to do it. Because the gospel is true doesn't mean, as we go back to an earlier lesson, that the law and its requirements have been removed. The law just no longer rules. The law is not how you are saved. The law is in its proper context. It is a gracious guide that tells us how to obey our loving Father who saved us in his son Jesus. And that's what he's trying to give us here. Jesus is trying to instruct his disciples. You have a responsibility not to cause others to stumble. And the way that you're going to keep that well is by abiding in Jesus. Let me pray. Father, we ask, we ask that we would press into your son with such devotion, such devotion that we can actually pray that God would kill us before he'd allow us to lead others into sin. Father, give us a true sense of how weighty sin is and how how much it offends you and how it harms our brothers and sisters in Christ. And give us a desire in our hearts to, to lead them and encourage them to holiness and not to sin. And Father, give us such a passion to see your name exalted and our brothers looking to you that we would really rather die than cause them to stumble. Pray that you would do that work in us by your spirit. We know that that won't come out of our own hearts, that your spirit has to work that in there, and we pray that you would. In Jesus' name, amen.